You're 35 years old, you live in a mid-sized city, you go to a decent-sized church, and you have a decent amount of friends, but all your friends are married. Some have kids and they're in another life stage to you. You feel like you've been left behind. It never used to bother you when you were younger because your friends were single and you would hang out together and do stuff all the time, but that's not the case anymore. Now you wake up on the weekend on a Saturday morning and you look across in your bed and it's empty. And you wonder, is this how it's always going to be? Is this the story of the rest of my life? Alone, single, forgotten, watching others from the sidelines? You're in the valley of loneliness. And you whisper in a quiet, doubt-filled voice, God, have you forgotten me? Your kid's in hospital again. You've been here way too many times. You watch as the doctors prod and poke your, your, your young son or daughter who has no idea what's going on. They're too young to understand. They didn't deserve it. And you'd swap places with them in a heartbeat if you could. But you can't. Words fail to describe the pain you feel. And you can't understand why God would allow this to happen. You believe God is good and you've trusted Christ for salvation, but you're going through the valley of sorrow and confusion. And you ask, how could this happen to someone who is related to the living God? It's cold. It's dark, it's lifeless. You've been battling depression for three years now. Winter has come and gone three times, yet it feels as though it's lasted all three years long. You aren't sure about God anymore. You can't find a job because you don't have the motivation to get out of bed in the morning, let alone apply for a job. You long for the day when colour and warmth might return to your life, but it doesn't feel like that's going to happen anytime soon. You read the Bible occasionally, but nothing. You've prayed endless amounts of times for God to stop you feeling like this, but nothing seems to change over and over and over again. Morning by morning, week by week, month by month, year after year. You're going through the valley of depression. And you ask God, will this ever end? Will it ever end? These are examples of people who have come to believe in a good God, but live in a world where they experience disappointment, despair, anguish, pain, silence, numbness. And there are many unanswered questions. And if you've ever experienced any of that or anything like that, then this message this morning is for you. There is a whole book of the Bible 
that expresses highly emotive language about both mountaintop celebrations and sobering valleys of despair. And it expresses the emotions of someone who walks through those trying to relate to the God they believe in. The God of the scriptures, the God of the Bible. And if you live long enough and you probably have, although the kids are in here this morning, you would have experienced both. You cannot go through this life without mountaintop joys and valley lows. You will have both. There will be joy and there will be dejection. There will be gladness and there will be grief. Optimism and despair. And the book of Psalms enlighten us to the penned words of those who have looked to a faithful God during the experiences of life. Many of these Psalms are joyous sonnets of worship and praise and thanksgiving. But some, like today's Psalm, are presented as anguished expressions of real people with real feelings in real times facing real life. And if you've ever thought that the Christian God, the God of the Bible, is one that you have to come to with your life sorted, if your life is uh, put together, if you've got everything straight, the Psalms will correct that for you. They are gritty, they are real, they are emotive, they are typically written by somebody who has a lot of questions rather than answers. They are highly emotive. And some of you don't like emotions. Some of you would probably say, I'm not an emotional person. I don't really have emotions. And just put your hands up here if you're one of those people. Like, I'm a facts and figures kind of person. I'm not one of those highly emotional kind of people. Nobody. I'm one. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Some of the, some of the men are starting to put their hands up. And some of us say, I don't really understand or I don't really get on board with some of the emotions that often David is writing on in the Psalms. But the truth is we are created in the image of God who has emotions. And so every single one of us have emotions. Some of us like to express them a little more enthusiastically than others. But every one of you has emotions. Some of them are deeply buried inside and you don't want to let them out. Psalms are the inner conversation that the psalmist is having with God. And they're inside you too. And you have these conversations, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, or whether they make their way to the outside or not, they're in you as well. Everybody has emotions. Everybody has questions. Everybody has a wrestle going on inside of them as they walk through different valleys. And the Psalms are bringing that conversation that David, in this case, is having with the Lord about what's going on in his life. And so you may not be an outward emotional person, but I'm telling you the Psalms, even if you aren't, are helpful.
This is what Ron Allen says about the Psalms, and I think it's helpful for us to, to read. It's on the screens. He says, Psalms basically are the expressions of a believer who has heard the sure prophetic word of God, but who lives in the troubled cauldron of society. His responses are often twofold. God is great, but life is tough. And broadly speaking, in Psalms, it's the function of Psalms to, to talk about how to respond to God, not necessarily to reveal new truth. That's a broadly speaking. And today in Psalm 13, we're going to see three sections that David writes. We're going to start with David's lament over his current distress. Then we're going to read David's petition for deliverance out of that distress. And he will conclude with his confidence in the Lord for salvation. And in this psalm, we're going to ask and answer one question. How should you respond when you're walking through the valleys of life in seasons of despair? How should you respond when you're walking through Valleys of life, seasons of despair. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 13, pretty much smack bang in the middle of your Bible. Pretty close to anyway. This one's written by David, as I've mentioned earlier. David is the king of Israel. He doesn't write all his Psalms as king. We have no real specific context of what's going on here for David to write this psalm. Sometimes at the beginning of the psalm, it tells you why David or when David is writing this or in response to why uh, something that's happening. This one doesn't tell us that. But we can kind of figure out some general context from the psalm itself. Needless to say, he's in distress. And it could be, it might be that David is speaking of his uh, coming physical death towards the end of his life, although I don't think so. It could be about a battle that he is in the middle of with the Philistines, of which he went through many. It could be about the time when Saul, before David was king, the, the previous king was hunting him down to destroy him out of jealousy and fear because David was to take the throne. It could be then. It could be when his son Absalom tries to take the throne from him and seeks to, to kill his own father. Maybe that's what the context is of David writing this up. We don't know, but there's plenty that David could choose from in his life that would prompt him to write Psalm 13. And we're going to begin with the lament over his distress. And a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And before we read, I just want to be really clear from, the, from up front. This is a psalm about suffering. This is not a psalm about sin and the consequences of our sin. All right, Suffering, uh, its most basic sort of simple way of thinking about it is suffering are things that happen to us. Or sin are, are things that we may choose to go and participate in and be a part of that will ultimately end in destruction. 
and many of us have experienced this, but this is not a psalm necessarily about sin and choosing those things. This is a psalm about suffering, of things that happen to us. So let's read verse 1 of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Let's pause there. Notice the question uh, at the beginning isn't, have you forgotten me? David's well past that point of, of wondering whether he has. It's, it's, he's actually asking, how long will you forget me for? How long will this go on for? Will it be forever? Because it sure feels like it sometimes, right? How long will you hide your face from me? What on earth does that mean? Well, the word for face there in the Hebrew is a very personal word. And it, and it comes to mean a variety of things, but it, it really has this idea of a very personal presence of God. Um, when, when God is instructing Moses to lead the Israelites into the promised land uh, in Exodus 33, it says, The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That word for presence is the same word here. It is, it is literally translated face. My face will go with you and give you rest. Again, in Deuteronomy 4, 37, as, as Moses is reflecting on uh, God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, he says this, He, talking about God, personally brought you out from Egypt by His great power. Again, that word personally is face. It's basically saying He, by His face, in a very personal presence kind of way, brought you out of Egypt by His great power. And then we have the famous benediction of the Old Testament in Numbers 6. You've probably heard this many times. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Right? And so it, it, it has this idea that God would be close to you, that he would be near to you, that his presence would go with you, that it would bring favor and graciousness. And It's a very personal interactive word and David says I don't see it anywhere right now you have hidden your face from me I cannot seem to feel your presence in my life and we get this we 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 understand this we actually live in a world that functions in a similar way right because we we have to in order to relate to somebody, in order to connect with somebody, in order to have pretty much have a relationship with somebody, we need to look at each other's faces. Right? Everyone kind of understands this. If you've ever been in a conversation, you've probably had this, right? You're having a conversation with somebody and they, they turn to a different direction. They're looking somewhere else and you're like, you're not even listening to me anymore. And I could say whatever I want and just, you know, you wouldn't even have a clue. Or you're having a conversation with somebody and they get out their phone and they start looking at their phone or they quickly check their phone and you just think, you are so rude, right? Because they have turned their face away from you and all of a sudden, 
They aren't looking at you. There's no connection. They're obviously not interested in you. Right? We, we understand this at a very young age. I was feeding my son the other night at the dinner table. He's not even one yet. Right? And he's sitting in this kind of like, it's almost like a high chair, but it sits on the dining table. And I had some food in front of him on his little plate. And I'd kind of, you know, put that on there so he could start feeding himself. And on the down the end of the table, there was like a bill or a letter or something like that in the mail. And so I sort of put some food on there and I looked over and I saw this thing and I started trying to read it from a distance, right? So I'm looking over there and all of a sudden, in, on the, out of the corner of my eye, I see my son's head just slowly kind of come into my vision as he was turning around to try and get my attention, right? And he's, he wants me to look at him. And uh, I said, oh, that's kind of interesting. And so I did it again. So I put some more food on him. I looked at him in the face. And then I turned over here and watched the letter again. And sure enough, this head just comes into my vision. Right? And what's he doing? He's, I want to make eye contact with you. I want you to notice me. I want you to see me. I want you to connect with me. Right? And he's not even one years old. Right? This is just in us. We understand that if you want to have relationship, if you want to communicate, if you want to be close to someone, you have to look at them in the face. You have to have face, uh, eye contact. I mean, how would you like it if I just started preaching this message back here and all you saw was the back of my head constantly? Some of you are loving this right now. <laughs> but it just, it would be so bad. I wouldn't be able to communicate. I wouldn't be able to connect. Thankfully, I had a haircut this week, so it doesn't look too bad back there. But do you understand what I'm saying? Like the, the eye connection face uh, pointing at one another it's so important and David says I feel like you're not looking at me I'm here struggling and you don't even look at me your your face is hidden from me verse 2 how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Literally, the Hebrew says, how long will I put counsel in my being and grief in my heart by day? God, I am ongoingly distressed by this. There is a continual conversation and wrestle inside of me that won't go away. It feels like grief all day long. Some of you have felt that. Some of you are feeling that right now. And it doesn't matter what you do. You go to work, you go home, you, you do all these things, but there's, there's just a constant wrestle, conversation, grief turning over inside of you. And then David asks, how long will my, my enemy triumph over me? And then the enemy here is not specified. It's left, it's vague, it's general. And I think it's purposely done so that people of any era can think of the things that may be an enemy to them from their own perspectives that they face. Essentially, the Psalms are going to become the worship liturgy for the nation of Israel. And so they're used as years and years and hundreds and, and thousands of years go by. 
And so it's almost like an insert your enemy here kind of deal. And we have to be careful with that of what we put in there and whether that's truly something that uh, would fit in the context. I'll leave that up to you. But effectively, David is saying, I'm losing, my enemy is winning, and you don't care. I'm losing, my enemy is winning, and you don't seem to care. God, I'm hurting. Loneliness is winning, and you don't seem to care. I'm hurting. Depression is winning. Atheism is winning. Addiction is winning. Doubt is winning. Sadness is winning. Disease is winning. Abuse is winning. Infertility is winning. Manipulation and deceit is winning, and you don't seem to care. Can anyone relate to David? That is the honest, unsanitized truth of David's world that he brings before the Lord. And some of you probably sit there and think, I can't do that. I can't say those things to God. I can't bring those charges to him. And my response to that would be, where would or should the believer bring those responses and charges to? You see, I think the accusations and forthright openness that we see in David towards God really shows that he has a deep, resilient faith in a God that he turns to when his world caves in. Where do you turn to as your world or when your world caves in? I think the Psalms model for us that we are to turn to the Lord and pour out our hearts in the most honest and unsanitized real way that we can put words to. If you don't see the Lord as somebody that you could do that with, that you could bring that before, I would I would challenge you or ask you the question of why? Why is that? Do you, do you think he's mean and angry at you? Is he just too distant? Do you just not even know how to? You, don't even, you haven't spoken to him for, you can't even remember how long and it just feels too big of a leap to take. Or maybe you've just never done it and you don't even know how to do it. But I would encourage you that you should bring yourself and your current situation and what you're walking through before the Lord as honestly and as personally as possible. And and, and it does not have to be fancy or well-spoken. You can simply say, God, I currently feel fill in the blank. God... I currently feel angry. And I'm angry about such and such, so and so. God, I currently feel broken. 
I'm broken because of this situation. God, I currently feel nothing. I feel nothing. That is the lament piece of the psalm. Now we turn to the petition for deliverance. Petition is basically a fancy way of saying asking. David's going to ask the Lord for three things. He's going to ask him to look at him. He's going to ask him to answer him and he's going to ask him to give light to his eyes. Verse 3 and 4. Look at me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Firstly, David wants the opposite of hiding his face from him. He wants the Lord to look at him. Notice me. See my situation. What I'm going through. It's the opposite of turning the face away. Secondly, he says, answer me. Break through the silence. Tell me what you're doing. Speak to me. Something. Anything. Because we all know that suffering can be intensely quiet at times. David just wants to hear something from the Lord. And thirdly, David asks the Lord to give light to his eyes. Light to his eyes. What does he mean by that? Well, here's what I think he means by that. See, David was a king. Before that, uh, when he was, he was a boy, he was a shepherd. But all through his life, as you read through First and Second Samuel, what David really was before um, he was a king and after he was a shepherd was he was a warrior. And he had gone to many, many battles. And while you're on the front line, if you're in a war and you, you get struck and you hit the ground, there's no ambulance coming from you, right? There's no emergency helicopter flying in to escort you out. If you fell in battle, you were there, you were lying there, you weren't moving. And that's if you stayed alive, obviously. And as you lay there in the battle... And you lay on that hot Palestinian soil that would just suck the life juices out of you. And slowly but surely, you would begin to head towards death. But after the battle was over, those uh, from your, your nation would come out and they'd seek to give you aid. And those who had fallen with bandages and herbs and spices and those sorts of things. But the, the axes... And the swords and the spears, they were pretty effective at taking life or wounding enough that there was no return to life. And there's no doubt that David, in his time, over those many battles that he would have fought, would have seen his friends die in war. And it's likely even that he probably cradled the heads of his mates as they passed from life into death. And on to the next. And just as David would have seen death have its full effect 
I think he references a metaphor from that. You see, as people die, and you may or may not have seen this, as people die, their eyesight fails. And sometimes this can be a really slow process over a long period of time. But sometimes it can happen quite quickly. But if your eyesight is going, you know you're near the end. And the best actors in movies can pull this off. right? You watch a movie and somebody's dying and you watch their eyes. And their eyes are the things that tell you whether or not they're gone. And uh, I have a favorite set of movies. It's called Lord of the Rings. If you don't like it, you could leave right now. That would be appropriate. But there is this scene in Lord of the Rings where... The king, King Thaden, has gone to battle. He has fallen in battle. He has been injured and he's lying there. He's been saved by his daughter, Eowyn, right? And the battle is finished and he's lying on the battlefield and Eowyn, his daughter, comes to be by his side as he dies. And I want you to watch this clip. I want you to listen to what he says kind of towards the beginning and it's, it's quite, hopefully the sound's up enough that you can hear it. And then I want you to watch his eyes at the end, just before he goes. Right? Brilliant acting. You watch his eyes just a couple of seconds before he goes. His eyes go first, and then the rest. Right? You have to watch close, and uh, then I'll, I'll make a comment.
Did you catch what he said at the end, uh, just at the beginning there? He said, my eyes darken. And then did you see it at the end? His eyes tell the story. Just before he goes, his eyes go first. And this is what I think David is referring to when he's saying, bring, bring light to my eyes. He's basically saying, God, if you don't do this, I'm at the end. I'm, uh, I'm going to die. Is it a physical death? I, I don't know. Maybe he feels that way. But basically he's saying, if you don't bring light to my eyes, my enemy will triumph. They will rejoice. And I wonder if you feel like that sometimes. Or you just don't know what's going on in your life. And you say to yourself, I, I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm barely hanging on. I remember when I went to uh, the States for the first time, I moved there, I was quite naive and I just thought, I'm going to have the best time of my life, I'm going to make so many friends, I'm going to be, you know, just, just it's going to be mountaintops all, all day long. And um, I moved over there to study and I got to um, the accommodation place on campus where I was studying and I was about a month early before the semester actually began and so guess what, no one was there. Right, the place was just a ghost town, and I was the only person staying in this huge apartment complex because everybody had gone home for the summer, as they do, which you find out later. And um, you know, I'm just there by myself for a month. I don't know anyone. I didn't. I, I had a newest. Did not know a single soul in that country at the time. It was the most lonely, isolating feeling I've ever had in my life. I mean, I was surrounded by people. I was in one of the biggest cities in the country, and I could walk past people all day long and yet I was so lonely because I didn't have any connection to any of them and yet I was sure that God had called me to go to Bible college and to study and I remember I used to cry myself to sleep And just wonder, like, God, what are you doing? I thought you wanted me to be here. And yet, I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. And I used to ask him, would you take it away? Would you change my circumstances? That's the petition. And we, always, we ask God, Lord, if you can, if you will, I would love it if you would change these circumstances. And you know what? He did, but it took a long time. So what do we do in the meantime if God doesn't change our circumstances? Maybe he doesn't change them for a long period of time. Maybe he doesn't change them ever. Well, verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. 
That is a dramatic change of direction from what we've read previously. You notice the conjunction there of contrast, but it, it signals and indicates we're heading in this direction and we're going to change direction all of a sudden in complete contrast. In other words, I know you're silent, but I know I haven't experienced what I thought I would, but it feels like I'm losing, but I trust in your unfailing love. More specifically, the word there for unfailing love is this Hebrew word chesed. And when you say it, you almost have to hock up a golly, right? It's like a chesed. I won't keep doing it that way, but that is how you're supposed to say it. Chesed. And it's a word that we have a lot of trouble translating into English because it's such a vast word with so much depth. What, what it really comes to mean is two concepts that are combined. It's loyal love, and they're not necessarily that separate from each other, but it's the idea of loyal love and sacrificial mercy. And a combination of those, and you get chesed. And we have a lot of trouble trying to figure out how do we translate that into one English word. And we do our best to try and get that meaning across. But I think a lot of the times it's lost. And I think it's so important to what David is putting his, his trust and his confidence in. He is putting it in chesed and the character of God, which is chesed. And it has the loyal love component which means he's faithful and caring and it's ongoing. And so sometimes it gets translated as faithful. But it's, it's more than that. It's, it's about having an obligation towards someone for their best. And so sometimes it's, it's translated as loving kindness. But it's more than that. It's, it's the idea that you would have mercy on someone and care for them. And so sometimes it's translated as mercy. But it's more than just mercy on its own. It's got this idea that you would give mercy to somebody at your own expense. Even if it would cost you, you would show mercy to somebody else. And so it's got this sacrificial mercy idea. And you combine all of those things into one word and you get this word, hesed. And that's why we have such a hard time trying to figure out what English word do we use. And David says, I will trust in your hesed. I will come back to what I know to be true about you and your character. And when he does that, he says, my heart rejoices in your salvation. Because of God's character of hesed, David knew that he could trust the Lord in the midst of the valley. And it would be inevitable that God would be loyal, he would be loving, he would be merciful, and he would self-sacrifice if he has to, in order to care for David and give him everything he needs in his life. And some of you are walking through a valley right now, and you're like, I cannot see that. I cannot see God's hesed right now. My eyes are darkened. And you wonder, 
what am I meant to put my confidence and trust in if I cannot see it? I can't see God's goodness. I can't understand what he might be doing. I can't even say that it would be true right now. And when that is the case, you have to look at something that God has done that gives you confidence about his character. And sometimes you can look at current circumstances and see God's goodness and see God's loyalty and see God's love right where you're at right now. But sometimes it is so dark in your eyes that you can't see that at all. And when that is the case, you have to go back to the time where God was most obvious in his hesed. And you put your confidence in that and in the character of God that was on display then. And I think that is this. This is Hesed. This is the time when God's character was on display more than any other time in the history of the world. Where Jesus Christ, God's own son, sacrificed himself upon a cross for the benefit of the whole world. His loyalty and love to humanity meant he would go to the most extreme, extreme degree of self-sacrificial mercy in an act that would separate human history. David looked forward to it. We look back at it. It is the moment that changed the world. It defines who we are. There has been nothing more significant in the history of the world than Jesus dying on the cross. And there is nothing more sure and confident that you can be in for God's character than this right here. And so if you cannot see God's goodness, you cannot see God's hesed right now in your life, you have to go back to the character of God exemplified in Christ on the cross. We have to go back to the cross. You see, if you were walking past the cross that day, you would have looked up and you would have seen a bruised, battered man hanging on a Roman cross, struggling for air as the soldiers gambled over his clothes and the crowd mocked. And you would have concluded as you walked past that day, you would have said, huh, another failed Jewish Messiah. That's probably what you would have concluded. And that's what everybody concluded that day as they walked past and they saw that or they, they heard of that. But the truth is that that single act of Hesed brought you the possibility of forgiveness of sins and the sins of the entire world. All of the sins of the entire world, both past, present and future, all poured out on one man in the matter of hours in an afternoon. It took anyone who believed in this Messiah from dead in their sins and trespasses to life in Christ eternal. It purified us completely so that we might be a vessel in which God himself could indwell through the Holy Spirit. It gave us an eternal hope that Jesus will one day physically return to the earth and put an end to the effects of the curse that occurred at the fall that makes these valleys so hard to walk through. 
His resurrection three days later after that death guaranteed those who believe that not only is death not the end, but there is one who will resurrect you one day into an eternal, everlasting kingdom. And there is nothing that can stop that from happening. It is guaranteed, assured, locked in. And all made possible by somebody who, if you walked past them, you would say they are failing. They are losing. That is the character of our God. And the scriptures call us to put our confidence, not in our circumstances and what we may feel or see around us right now, but in a heavenly father who loves you, in a savior who laid himself down for you, And a Holy Spirit who interprets your inward groans of pain, of despair before God when you have no words. This is what we can be confident of. This is the beauty of Christianity. That even when it looks like we're losing, we're not. We experience grief, anguish, tragedy, pain, suffering and even despair. And those experiences, those feelings that you might be walking through, they are real. But ultimately, we, we can be confident and trust in a God who is loyal, loving, sacrificial, and merciful. And he will ultimately win. And we will ultimately experience victory if not now in the kingdom, and it will be through Christ. You see, in Psalm 13, you have both despair and affirmation. Despair and affirmation. God can be both silent and trustworthy. Martin Luther once said, there are times when our hope despairs. These are the times our despair must learn to hope. And if you can see the hesed of God on displaying Christ, and you put your trust in Him, and you know deep down that His character will see you through, The only response after that is worship. And that is where David finishes in verse 6. He says, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Christ is the continual reminder that God has been good to us. Despite what is going on right now, Despite the hardship, despite the failures, despite the loneliness, despite the despair, God has been good to us and he will continue to be good to us. And the cross is the ultimate display of that where we can be confident of God's character. So what should you do if you're walking through the valley of despair? 
I think you should do two things. Speak honestly with the Lord. Pour out your heart. Tell him what you are going through. But secondly, you need to choose to put your confidence in the Lord and his character over your current circumstances. Even if you feel like you're losing right now, you know that one day, because of God's character, victory will come, whether it be in this life or in the kingdom to come.